Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I want to begin by being the first to wish everyone a safe, successful holiday travel season. Ben Baldanza, it seems like Thanksgiving and Christmas travel begins earlier and earlier each year, and it certainly is forecast to get a lot bigger this year. A Deloitte survey says 48% of Americans are planning to travel over the holidays this year, up from 31% last year. That's a big jump. And of those planning to travel, 37% plan to fly. I hope airlines and airports and Mother Nature are all ready for what looks like a giant surge. Well, they've certainly had fair warning, Scott. I hope air traffic control is ready, too, because that's where a lot of our slowdown lies. It seems like passing the buck to passengers, but I think airlines should ask customers to call their congressional reps when they're on flights that are delayed and say, get air traffic control working, because that's often the real cause. And Scott, looking at Cerium data, you can see that over the last few years, Thanksgiving, Christmas time, travel have spread out. Not everyone leaves on Wednesday and comes back on Sunday anymore. Airlines know this, can plan for it, but so does air traffic control. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ben, I have to jump in with a little air traffic control note. Our friend Dave Grizzle who served as chief operating officer at the Federal Aviation Administration and headed up the air traffic organization, sent us an interesting note from an important conference. Dave said, just so you know that your concepts are gaining currency in a plenary panel on November 2nd at the Air Traffic Control Association annual meeting, a prominent industry insider boldly promoted the adoption of, quote, Scott McCartney's proposal to initiate a Manhattan project, quote, to address the national risk presented by the current state of the nation's air traffic control system. Thanks for the note, Dave. Let's hope momentum builds for a serious and substantive effort to come up with a workable plan to fix both the staffing shortages and the technology deficiencies. I'll say it again. We can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a better outcome. Something has to change. It's great to hear that your Manhattan Project idea is resonating, Scott. Speaking of plans that resonate, 
We're going to talk today to one of the leading experts in building strong corporate cultures. Ginger Hardage was head of communications and culture at Southwest Airlines during the huge growth years under Herb Gallagher and Gary Kelly. I'm looking forward to hearing her stories and thoughts about what she saw in those days. Couldn't agree more, Ben. Ginger had a seat at the table when a lot of history was made in this industry, and I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Well, Ben, your companies have certainly been in the news this week, along with predictions of swelling holiday travel. Some listeners may know that you're the chairman of the board of Six Flags, the amusement park company, and Six Flags announced an $8 billion merger this week with amusement park company Cedar Fair. Congratulations on that. And JetBlue, where you are on the board, has been making all kinds of news, not nearly as profitable, however. For starters, JetBlue announced a third quarter loss of $153 million dollars blaming air traffic control and weather delays, which were particularly bad in New York, JetBlue's home. The company also took a hit from the loss of passenger feed from American Airlines through the Northeast Alliance that the government quashed. On top of that bad quarter, JetBlue forecast a wider-than-expected loss for the current quarter, despite all that surging holiday travel. And more blues for JetBlue. The slot authority in Amsterdam said JetBlue would get zero takeoff and landing slots next summer at Schiphol Airport. The slot coordinator cut the number of available slots by more than 3%. Airlines get cuts across the board, but two dozen airlines, including JetBlue, got frozen out completely. JetBlue started flying to Amsterdam from New York last August and Boston back in September. Amsterdam became a red light flying district, ostensibly because of a local noise ordinance. But noise wouldn't seem to be the real issue here. There's no distinction between noisy aircraft and quieter aircraft. Amsterdam has been at the forefront of environmental concerns regarding aviation. The U.S. Department of Transportation says the skip hole closure to JetBlue violates the Open Skies Treaty between the U.S. and the Netherlands. JetBlue has urged retaliation against Dutch carrier KLM by taking away JFK slots, and DOT says it will have consultations with the Dutch Authority and the European Commission starting next week. So the tulips may still get planted for JetBlue. And that's still not all. The trial started last week where the Biden administration is suing to block the JetBlue spirit merger. Both airlines have flown into some fierce headwinds since the merger was announced, and at least in the stock market, Spirit is really worth only half of what it was when the deal was struck. There seems to be even greater urgency to get the deal done from the airline's side. It seems clearer and clearer that the big four are becoming more and more dominant, and the smaller airlines are having a harder and harder time competing. I find it almost comical at this point that the government says a JetBlue Spirit merger would substantially lessen competition in the airline industry. It seems like that plane took off long ago when the government allowed four airlines to control more than 80% of the market, each with about 20% market share. 
And now here's little JetBlue with 5% to 6% of the domestic market. And suddenly its effort to get to 10% is seen as the death of competition in the skies. Earth to DOT, the biggest threat to competition is the big guys running the little guys out of town. Ben, it must have been a week of highs and lows for you this past week. I know you can't talk about a lot of it, but it sure seems interesting. I am curious to hear your thoughts on the troubles that the smaller airlines are having. Is it temporary or is it a sign of market dominance that we've really worried about for years finally starting to happen? Well, Scott, when you serve on the board of a company, you have to be careful not to take other roles that could be seen as conflictive. So when I took the role at Six Flags, I talked to JetBlue about it. And they at first said, of course, we don't see a conflict. I said, you don't recognize the roller coasters at both companies? <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. <laughs> we all laughed. But you're right about everything you said. The Six Flags potential merger is great for customers. And I think everyone will see it that way. Getting back to airlines, I think the Amsterdam thing is crazy. I recognize and appreciate the Netherlands' right to control noise, emissions, and other things. But to wipe out a dozen carriers while protecting your own carrier seems very provincial to me. In terms of small airlines, you know, I don't think they're crushed forever. I think the losses at Spirit and Frontier and JetBlue all have this dark cloud of big airlines pushing the small guys out. But I also think there's a timing issue. The biggest revenue generator of this summer was long-haul international travel. And the little airlines don't participate in that. So the big airlines had those profits plus loyalty program profits. And without those two, their domestic flying didn't look that great either. So I think more needs to be seen before we write the obituary of the low-cost airline. Great points. Totally agree. But it is interesting to see what happens next. And Scott, JetBlue wasn't the only one to make news. Southwest Airlines CEO Bob Jordan told the Skift Aviation Conference that Southwest is talking to DFW Airport about adding flights in a few years. These would be in addition to their flights at 
Dallas love feel and would certainly be more direct competition for American Airlines and for Spirit Airlines, which has been the second largest carrier at DFW. That's a battle that's going to be fun to watch. It really is. You hang around long enough, Ben, and you see it all. For me, since I have covered the Wright Amendment at Dallas Love Field for decades, this may be a now-I've-seen-everything moment when and if Southwest starts flying at Dallas-Fort Worth International. Of course, I never thought I'd see Southwest at LaGuardia or Chicago O'Hare, for that matter. I think this makes perfect sense. The remaining restrictions from the Wright Amendment run out in 2025. And Southwest can serve both DFW and Love Field at that point. Right now, it has to pick one or the other, and obviously Love Field is Southwest's home. Southwest is already maxed out at Love Field, 195 flights a day from 18 gates, so almost 11 per gate per day. The city of Dallas doesn't seem inclined to expanding the Love Field terminal, though this could well be a negotiating ploy by Southwest to get more gates at Love. DFW expansion offers one big benefit, international flights. Southwest can't offer international flights from love today. And there's really nowhere else to expand in Dallas-Fort Worth except DFW. Southwest serves multiple airports in many cities, including Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, Houston, Boston, Washington, D.C., and Miami. DFW and Love Field are closer than many of those multiple airports Southwest serves. The two Dallas airports are only about 12 miles apart. I know some executives at Southwest thought McKinney, Texas, a suburb north of Dallas where there's a small airport where I did a lot of my flight training, would be an interesting addition. But in May, voters in McKinney rejected a $200 million plan to expand that airport and build a commercial terminal. DFW, meanwhile, has announced it's going ahead with construction of Terminal F, which should open in 2026. Hmm. Southwest loses love field restrictions in 2025 and DFW opens a new terminal in 2026. Seems to all line up. Bottom line, Southwest has to be able to grow in Dallas. This seems like a no-brainer. I agree, Scott, and yet it shows how the world changes, and once Little Southwest is now one of those big four airlines putting pressure on everyone, not just the little guys, but the big guys too. Yeah. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank Dohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Dohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, 
create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Now let's bring in Ginger Hardage. Ginger Hardage is founder of Unstoppable Cultures, which helps organizations create and sustain great cultures. She retired as Senior Vice President of Culture and Communications at Southwest Airlines after more than 25 years, where she had a seat at the top table during the high-growth heydays with legends like Herb Kelleher, Colleen Barrett, and Gary Kelly. She recently was inducted into the Communication Professionals Hall of Fame at the Arthur W. Page Society. She also serves as global chairman of the board for Ronald McDonald House Charities. Ginger came to Southwest after working in corporate communications at some of Dallas's, let's say, more boring oil companies. I worked with Ginger and her team on so many stories over the years, and there were some crazy times in there. It's an absolute pleasure to have you join us on Airlines Confidential. Um, well, great, Scott. I'm delighted to be on. And it's, you know, uh, like we've had conversations in the past, uh, once you're in the airline business, you always feel connected to it. And after 25 years uh, with the high-flying Southwest Airlines, I definitely still feel connected. So Ben, it's great to be with you as well. So Ginger, tell us how you got into the airline business and what was it like going from staid oil companies to wild and woolly Southwest? <laughs> well, Scott, you know, um, I was very lucky and that Southwest Airlines wasn't necessarily looking for people with previous airline experience. In fact, back then, when I was hired in 1990, they were pretty great about looking for people who didn't come with any bad habits. And that was the joke. We don't want any other bad airline habits. Hmm. So that uh, we always joked about that. So coming from the oil and gas business, I certainly didn't have um, a background in the airline industry, but I'd had 13 years in business under my belt and knew a lot about crisis communication, uh, employee communication. So when I started at Southwest, I started as their director of public relations with a very small team. There were only three of us. And wow. when I ended up leaving Southwest, we had a team of 150 that looked at a lot of different areas of the company, not just public relations or communications, but we we definitely grown, uh, grown how we looked at uh, the things that really built the reputation, the internal employee engagement, Southwest Airlines, and well, we may talk about this later, even emergency response there. So how I got there is I was actually networking with the local people, uh, trying, it was time for me to change jobs. I was networking and a local television contact told me about the job at Southwest. So back in 1990, you wrote a letter and you sent your resume. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's what I did. And I uh, was interviewed by Herb and Colleen. So I went, uh, they were great. They understood I needed to complete my day at my current job. So I joined them at five o'clock and we talked until eight o'clock <laughs> that night. 
goals. And I felt so good about it. I was just, I was ready to start. I was just ready to sign up. And one of the things I knew going into that, because I had a friend who worked at Southwest and I knew I was not only convincing Herb Kelleher, I knew that Colleen Barrett would have even more so of a say about who was taking on the role. So I knew I was interviewing with both of them. And that was a blast. I'll never forget those conversations. And it went so well, but I didn't hear from them. And then I didn't hear from them. And I thought, oh, man, um, I, I guess that, that was just in my mind, I thought it went so well. And so I got this call. I was back, you know, at my oil and gas job and my phone rings and this guy introduces himself as Ron Ricks, who at the time was over um, a governmental affairs. And he said, I'm sitting here with the head of marketing and we're both ready for your nine o'clock interview and you're not here. And I, I, I mean, I just panicked. I panicked. I was like, oh my gosh. And then he started laughing and he said, then we realized we didn't tell you to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's how it started. And he said, we're in so much trouble with Colleen uh, because we have dropped the ball on this. So I met with one of them uh, that day, the other one the next day. And then I got the offer. And uh, 25 years later, the rest was history. So, but it almost didn't happen. I, I was wow. to wonder there for a while. Yeah. What a great story. <laughs> well, many of our listeners will want to know what it was like working on the inside with Herb Keller and Colleen Barrett. You were there from 1990 to 2015, a period of incredible growth and challenge. What was it like? You know, Ben, I would say the one thing that really struck me is that Southwest is even more authentic on the inside than it is on the outside. And working there was always about respect for each other, just incredible respect for individuals at every level of the organization and what they had to contribute. So I'll, I'll start with Herb. What I learned most from Herb would be about his incredible focus on the individual. If Herb was talking to you, he was fully engaged with you. He wasn't looking behind you to see who the next conversation was going to be with. You know, back then, the, there wasn't a lot of talk about mindfulness and being, you know, focused, but Herb already had that. He was so mindful and focused on whoever he was speaking with, and he really, really cared and wanted to draw people out, draw individuals out. And you would see this when he was out walking around um, and he, he'd be at the maintenance hangar, for example, and he'd know how long that particular mechanic had been with Southwest Airlines. He would probably know something about their children. And he, I learned from him the importance of really going deep and learning about people, learning about their hopes and dreams, learning about their families and uh, focusing on what those individuals cared about. And he did that and made everyone feel so important and involved in the airline. And I think that contributed to uh, the team orientation there because everyone felt 
um, so valued. So that is something I try to, to emulate and, but also pass along to leaders that I work with in, in my consultancy is the importance of really focusing on getting input, uh, that inclusiveness and decision-making. Herb and Colleen were great about that and uh, being inclusive in decision-making at all levels of the organization is so important. It takes longer, uh, it takes longer to uh, reach a decision, but I think we all know that it's much harder to criticize a decision if you had input on it. And Herb and Colleen definitely practice that. So focus on Colleen would be, um, you know, she was known inside the organization as, as the queen of hearts. And she definitely put the heart into Southwest Airlines. And what I learned most from her was the importance of having systems in place to perpetuate um, your culture and to uh, really put success behind uh, whatever you were launching, whatever particular launch you were having inside your organization. So for example, she put the system in place to make sure that every, back in the day, again, back when people were writing letters, she made sure that every customer letter was answered. And that, I I don't think any of the competitors were doing it back then. And they got a really personal um, response. And Colleen saw to that. And in fact, there was a group of folks that would get together on Saturdays. Colleen would lead this every Saturday. And they, uh, early on, early on in Southwest Airlines, and they would answer every one of those customer letters. So she put a lot, so many of the systems in place that focused on the customer, focused on the employee, and focused on that complete loop of completing communication and staying in touch. That's so interesting. And 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 the culture continued throughout, right? I remember some of the fun answers, some of those, those letters. Um, uh, there was, I guess, sort of legendary. Somebody wrote in one time and said, uh, the toilet paper is upside down in your uh, on your airplane lavatories, and the response went back. What are you doing standing on your head in our bathrooms? I know that <laughs> so, was a classic. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Scott. So it was using is putting that personal touch, and there, you know, there were scores of examples like that of, about um, put, putting humor. You know, Herb didn't take himself too seriously. And that also was carried through in how we conducted ourselves. Uh, meetings were fun. Uh, people enjoyed each other at work. And um, again, that's what I try to communicate to organizations as the importance of that. Life is too short to not enjoy the people you work with and uh, what you do every day. So we, we want to talk more about culture, but but I want to ask a, a communications question. Airline communications are a vital part of the business and one where airlines sometimes trip up. These days, it seems like the issues are more that companies are too slow to respond in this era of instantaneous communications. Um, but in the past, the issues maybe were more of denial that things happened or trying to sugarcoat it when bad things happened to travelers. What's your philosophy about how airlines need to communicate with media and with customers? Yeah, Scott, the world has really changed and the immediacy is 
so critical. You know, when we were putting together, we actually formed an emergency response department uh, during my time early on uh, when I was with Southwest. And that was one of my departments. And we would always joke that if we had a crisis, we would first hear about it from uh, CNN. But that's that's certainly no longer the case. You're going to first hear about it from somebody who was on the aircraft. And customers are recording everything that happens, and then immediacy is so important. So I'll answer that question on two levels, um, the importance of the everyday and the importance of the emergency response. On the everyday, because issues that in the past might not have risen to national prominence do they can. Yeah. Um, uh, the smallest actions can go viral on social media. So I would say it's the importance of empowering employees on the front line, regardless of what your industry is. Uh, for those in the airline industry who are leading or those who might be in another industry, really empowering your uh, employees. And the way we refer to it at Southwest was uh, empower them to act like owners, give them the level of authority, training, information to actually be able to solve the problem in place. Because if you don't solve a problem when it's happening immediately, it's just going to become more expensive the longer uh, it goes on and uh, the longer it takes to solve that problem. So the more you can do to equip your people on the front line to immediately solve the problem and have everything at their disposal to do that, um, that's going to keep it from escalating. Mm-hmm. And then on the emergency side, um, again, we created a department. We had various levels of responsibility. We had a lot of people engaged in what we had. We had a command center, for example. So uh, there was everyone represented from the airport operations, maintenance operations, all the key uh, aspects of the airline were represented in that command center. And we built out various scenarios for, for what could happen and draft responses for countless possibilities that might have occurred. And we also had routine drills where we coordinated our responses. So I would, regardless of industry, and I, I think the airlines are all doing this, um, is being very prepared from an emergency uh, response standpoint. Now, we can never properly prepare for every scenario, but we should try to anticipate every type of scenario. And sometimes it helps you realize vulnerabilities. If you're not able to respond quickly um, in a drill, um, you can shore up that uh, that weakness and be ready when the, um, the real drill comes along. Ginger, last Christmas, Southwest had a lot of operational problems and disrupted a lot of people. You weren't there, but if you were, would you have done anything differently? Or is this the kind of action you would look forward to addressing? You know, that was a very difficult time uh, for Southwest. And I wouldn't wouldn't begin to try to second guess because I wasn't there. But I know that in the moment, you're trying to determine where's our weakness 
And how are we going to turn this around? And I think they were very wise when they halted operations, reset the airline and started over. So I was on one of those first flights after the pause and they recalibrated, people were back in place and started the airline up again. And I knew they were going to be okay because I was on one of those first flights and the flight attendant got on and, you know, she apologized, uh, recognized the difficulty that many people had had. And she said, you know, with tears in her voice and her eyes, she said, "Um, I love my airline and we're going to do everything possible to make it up to you. And I think Southwest has been doing it uh, every day since then is rebuilding the trust and really focusing on making it right with their customers. Well, that goes to an extremely strong culture. So your title was SVP of Culture and Communications. What does it really mean to be in charge of culture? Well, you know, Ben, one of the things I will say is culture is not one person's job. Um, It's not uh, just somebody who would have that title. It's not just the CEO's uh, job. And the goal of every organization is for culture to be everyone's job. Um, Because when when we feel like um, we're all acting like owners and we're owning the culture and however we're interacting with our customers or our employees, uh, that's the most most important thing. So how, but but, um, when when you do have culture in your title, one of the things we focused on, um, and, and I was lucky in that we knew the importance of having culture and communications in the same area. Uh, because a lot of times when I work with companies, I realize one of their failures in their culture may be their lack of communications or their lack of transparency in their communications. So really taking a hard look at how you're reaching your employees, what are you communicating to them, how are they able to stay informed on what's happening in the organization. And the other failure I see uh, oftentimes is in at the level of mid-level management because that's such a critical part of any of our organizations or our mid-level managers, those leaders who are out there on the front lines every day uh, starting up our operations in whatever division or branch we might have uh, and the importance of those mid-level managers. So that's one of the areas we really focused on um, at Southwest was helping those leaders uh, be able to set the tone and set the importance of, of culture. So let's take the Spokane Airport, for example. That leader in the Spokane um, Airport is setting the tone. And we made sure that our supervisors and our leaders, for example, we had a program called Kick Tail because uh, we were trying to kick the tail of the competition. As you know, the airline business is very competitive. So when a leader caught an employee doing something great, uh, they would give them a kicktail card, which they could enter into our recognition program, and it would reward employees for doing uh, great work. So I would encourage leaders uh, to look at recognition and how are you using recognition 
to reinforce uh, great behavior, recognize the best of the best. So for example, and all of that laddered up to our big company goals. So if somebody caught someone doing something great at keeping an air, uh, one of the aircraft going out on time, they would get a kick tail because that laddered up to a company goal of having the best on-time performance. And it really showed that connectivity of the individual actions of, of an employee and how that ties into the overall company goals. So if I were to look at anything, I would look at how um, your communications uh, is going out in your organization. How are employees being involved in that communi communication and how are you recognizing them um, and making sure that employees understand their overall role and the operation of your organization. Ginger, I'm curious with that. You were talking before about Herb knowing, you know, the names of mechanics' children and and all of that. It has to be more and more difficult to create that culture. And and you talked about some of the tools, but is it sort of exponentially more difficult when you go from, you know, a thousand employees to ten thousand employees to twenty thousand employees? Southwest now approaching 80,000 employees. It must be harder and harder, especially at airlines when employees are scattered all over the map. Exactly. And that's, uh, that's why it's so important uh, for local leaders to, to take on um, that mantle because in some, um, some of the locations for Southwest, they're the size of a medium-sized organization just in, in their location. Mm -hmm. So the importance of that leader taking on, uh, understanding who their employees are, taking care of them. Um, in, in, in one of the ways that Southwest did that so well, and it's a program that Colleen started early on, and it still goes on today. At the time, I don't know what Southwest, how they refer to it uh, now, but in my day, we uh, called it internal customer care. And it's really focusing on the internal customer. And anytime someone had a major life event, an employee had a major life event, their leader would make sure that the company knew that they were what what that was. Did they have a baby? Did they have um, did they lose someone in their family? Uh, what would be appropriate to recognize whatever life event that was happening in their lives? For example, if uh, someone had a baby, they would maybe get flowers at the hospital or a, a baby gift. But just recognizing those important moments in people's lives. And I know we're hearing more and more um, about the importance of leaders staying in touch on the mental health. If they notice a change in an employee, being really focused on understanding what, what that person might be needing to be able to support them in any way so they can have uh, the, the most success in their role. And um, Southwest was great about that. And in terms of recognizing that the needs of their own employees and as, as organizations grow, that becomes harder and harder, but how do we keep it local and how do we keep that going on in our organizations? Your current work is with companies on culture. That's got to be a lot more than just putting a ping pong table in the break room or making sure the vending machines are full. Tell us about your work and how companies can build a culture or maybe even harder 
to change a culture. Ben, that is so true. You know, I go into organizations and they go, hey, well, you know, we've got culture. We've got a ping pong table, like you said. And I'm like, oh, yes, that's one aspect. But that that is only, um, uh, that's a small part of it, right? Um, the most important, and I said this before, is the importance of the leader setting the tone. So one of the ways that Gary Kelly did that as CEO, um, when he became the CEO um, at Southwest in 2004, you know, he was CEO for 18 years. And one of the things he did is he created a message to employees every week. So he did that for 18 years. And Bob Jordan uh, carries that tradition on, um, is a weekly message, an update to employees. And again, it's that combination of culture, communications. And um, Gary ended every one of those messages with a shout out to employee that recognized something an employee had done in the, in, during the week. And it it reinforced the values. Oftentimes, he would reinforce a value by showing how the employee uh, really lived that value in that moment. So the importance of those leaders setting the tone and uh, communicating. So if you're a leader with a department and you're hearing this, Take, take that as a, a cue and send out a weekly or monthly update uh, to your employees about how you feel about um, something that's going on in the organization, how your employees on your team are supporting it. And really, you're setting the tone. And as a leader, how are you, you boosting your visibility? Because employees really respond to direct involvement for their leaders. So when you look at your calendar as a leader, how much time are you spending out where you can be seen by your employees? If you have remote locations, how many video calls do you have every week? How are you reaching them through recognition? So as a leader, look at all the ways that you are setting the tone and how you are out there uh, reaching uh, reaching everyone as much as possible. And the other thing I would encourage those leaders to do is look at the concept of freedom in a framework and really build upon that. And what am I talking about there? It's giving your employees the freedom to execute their jobs in a way that really builds on their personality. So all of us have a set job we're supposed to do, but how much better if we can let them do it with their personality. So it would be that flight attendant who gives the fun announcement, uh, the pilot who plays a bit of harmonica before they uh, you know, make their announcements, anything that allows us to connect with our customers in a really personal way, I would encourage that. So, Ginger, a lot of stories today are about working from home or not coming in to the office for roles that use an office. Airlines have had to deal with this forever with pilots, flight attendants, and mechanics and airport workers all out of an office. When a company who is struggling with changes in people who used to come to the office but now only come in once or twice a week, what kind of advice 
would you give them about managing a culture in that environment? Ben, I hear this from a lot of organizations, and you're right. Um, The airlines have worked with remote workers uh, always. And, you know, for example, one of the lessons we learned uh, while I was there at Southwest, uh, uh, how to connect better with flight attendants, for example. Flight attendant supervisors used to be in offices, and they flipped that on its head. And um, many of the flight attendant supervisors actually were out where the flight attendants would check in before their flights um, so that the Flight attendants didn't have to go find their leader. Their leaders were there greeting them, thanking them, uh, recognizing them when they were when they were checking in for their flights. So that would be one thing I would say. You know, during my time at Southwest, we also had remote workers. And one of the things that we would concentrate on, those that were office-based remote workers, was regular check-ins. And it's even easier now with Zoom and all the other modes that we can connect. So I would encourage that as having uh, regular check-ins and um, how, how are we staying in touch with our remote workers? Because remote work is not going away. And uh, it, it gives people time to have more productive heads down time and then uh, the collaboration time when they are in the office. So I think it's, the importance is looking, looking at how different people do their jobs and helping them be the most effective, whether that's remote or in the office, there um, every job's going to be different. So we can't let you go without asking for a favorite herb story. I'm sure you have many, but is there anything that really stands out? <laughs> well, you know, it's very personal because yeah. I, I remember the time I made his ears turn red, and <laughs> and when when Herb, you know, he did he was he didn't get upset very often, but. When he was, his ears would turn red, and it was it was early on. We were proposing an intranet, an internal internet for our employees, and I, I probably could have done a much better job of preparing for that um, and selling it because his concern was that we were just going to flood with information and not prioritize it, and. He was so wise, if you think back to that, because you have to have incredible governance uh, with any type of website or intranet so that you make sure that uh, you can, because you can just continue to build up and build up information. You've got to continually edit it and keep it current and um, also being very direct by category uh, of how uh, people's needs are. So that, Scott, that's the one I remember the most. It's not a funny story, but it's a personal story um, that helped me realize how in tune he was about uh, the needs of really addressing uh, the communications needs of employees. And he was very specific of that. Uh, and w- but the end of it is we did develop an intranet, but we had to have incredibly good governance to make sure that it stayed current and uh, it didn't have a lot of unfiltered information in there. <laughs> well, I think I made his ears turn red when one time and he it was a news conference where he was announcing his um, prostate cancer. 
And I asked if he was going to quit smoking. And he launched into a diatribe, which basically started, Scott McCartney, I thought your mother raised you better than that. (laughs) (laughs) And did he end up saying, I don't smoke with my prostate? Yeah, he he said that, and then and then after a long screed, he said, "The answer is no." <laughs> I remember, I was I I was yeah. there for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ginger, this has been remarkable and wonderful and enlightening, and we really really appreciate you being with us. Um, so much fun to talk about this, and I think um, useful for people. Um, Corporate culture is so important, and, uh, and and I love the messages that you bring about it. Um, so thank you very much. Well, Ben, Scott, it has been great to be with you. I look forward to seeing uh, your listeners out flying around. And uh, thank you so much for the important work both of you do to uh, tell us what's happening in the airline industry. Well, Ginger, if companies want help with their culture, how do they find you? I have a website. It's called Unstoppable Cultures. Mainly what I do is a lot of keynote speaking and uh, come in as a proof point of what leaders are hoping to implement in their organizations. And I hope some of our listeners who need help will count on you. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you both. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history and you're welcome aboard the Archive.net. Thanks again to Ginger for a fun and interesting and informative discussion. Ben, some great questions in the mailbag this week. Matthew from Rochester, New York, in Vero Beach, Florida, asks, In the 1980s and 90s, 19 passenger turboprops were the mainstay of regional airlines connecting small cities to hubs and business centers. While people clearly prefer jet service, many cities are too small to support enough traffic for a 50 or 75-seat RJ, but could likely support a smaller turboprop. Why isn't there a modern version of these workhorses to serve small markets? Thanks. Ben, it seems like we hear about a turboprop revival from time to time, but it really doesn't happen. Matthew raises a great question. What do you think? Thanks, Matthew. This is a great question. The real problem with 19C planes is that they're 19C planes. Yeah. only 19 seats, there are certain costs you can't lower to match the smaller size of the equipment. So what you end up doing is needing quite high fares on planes that size. Is a pilot going to work for much cheaper to fly that plane? Is the fuel going to be cheaper? Is the airport space going to be cheaper? No. So with only 19 seats, it's tough to make it work. That's why you see the manufacturers going to bigger and bigger shells 
rather than smaller. That said, smaller turboprops, newer ones with good efficiency do have a role, but I think they wouldn't get much smaller than 45 or 50 seats. You know, it's interesting. I think this is a place where technology might eventually solve solve the day. If you if you had autonomous airplane flying, if you could fly with one pilot instead of two, if on on short routes with small planes, uh, you could have battery powered aircraft. Uh, with uh, there there might be uh, some future nineteen seat planes that would be economical. But I can certainly see how if, you, if you've got high per seat costs today, uh, you're going to have to have high fares, and high fares aren't going to work in small communities. Okay, here's another one for you, Ben. Alex from Minneapolis writes, Hello, Ben and Scott. I first want to say love the podcast. It is what I look forward to on my commute home from work every week. This being said, I haven't heard any news on the show about Sun Country Airlines, or as they say up north, Minnesota's hometown airline. Even though they are the 11th biggest airline in the U.S., they seem to be really expanding to new routes from MSP Terminal 2 each year. Looking at data from 2018 to 2022, Sun Country almost doubled the number of passengers it carried. What are your thoughts? How are they holding up in the industry as a niche, low-cost leisure travel choice for consumers and also expanding to flying cargo for Amazon? Ben, I know you're a fan of some of the really creative things Jude Bricker has done with Sun Country. You have thoughts on Sun Country for Alex? Well, Alex, Jude is a great leader, and Sun Country has remained super limber. During the pandemic, they quickly pivoted to carrying cargo and made money while other airlines were hemorrhaging. They're a good airline that's growing, and I agree we should cover them more and bring them back on the show to talk about Sun Country in 2024. And one more timely question. We talked about some of this before, but Daniel from Houston asked, United CEO Scott Kirby has been down on ULCCs like Frontier and Spirit because of their low margins and lack of premium options that are big money makers for legacy airlines. Do you agree with his comments? If he's right, what does the future look like for Allegiant Airlines and which airlines benefit if Spirit and Frontier suffer dramatically? Thanks, Daniel. I think I mentioned that I think Scott Kirby is ahead of himself on singing the death knell for the ULCCs. But Allegiant is even more different. Yes, They've evolved from their early days, but they still have a high percentage of their flights with no nonstop competition. They have strong support in many of the small cities they fly to. That gives Allegiant a little more strength and a little more resiliency. 
I wouldn't worry about those guys. They know what they're doing, and they're not exactly the same as Spirit and Frontier. All right, well said. Well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. And thanks again to Ginger for her great comments. We'll be back next week with more. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.